Okay, I haven't needed a microphone the last couple nights, and I'm going to try to go without it again tonight. I trust everyone can hear me. It really does give me honor and privilege to look out and see a bunch, a bunch of empty seats. When I'm in church and I see empty seats, what it tells me is that those of you are, that are here are here because you want to be here. And I'd rather preach the Word of God to those that want to be here than a sanctuary full of people that are either here for a free meal or they're here to impress mom and daddy, or they're here to impress the girl in the next row, or whatever. I'd rather those just stay home and watch the basketball game and just be able to share the Word of God with those who are here because they want to. So that's an honor and a privilege to me, and I'm humbled that you would come tonight to hear me. I'm just a servant, and I have nothing to offer other than what the Word of God clearly declares. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as it's been manifested in my life. Brother Jerry here gave me an interesting read earlier this morning. It was a, uh, an evangelist newsletter from 1954. And I found a couple of things in here that really were interesting to me because they're so, they reflect a mindset so different from the church in America of today. A mindset of an evangelist that's so different from the typical traveling evangelist today. I thought I'd have to share this. This editor here was a traveling evangelist. Preached revival services, kind of like I'm having the privilege of doing now. Here's what he says here on the front page. Now this is like out of a completely different era for me. It is our hope to spend practically the entire time of 1955 in evangelistic meetings in the churches. We never inquire about the size or the location or the affiliation of a church. We take the invitations as they come. Once an engagement is made, we will never cancel except for unavoidable providence, never to go to another place. Many of our greatest spiritual victories and most fruitful labors have been in the smallest churches and in the most obscure places. The only financial consideration is a free will offering taken by the pastor. Wow. How different is that from these guys that won't come to a church unless you can guarantee a certain number of people, unless you can guarantee the guy a four-star hotel. I believe there was a gentleman, I'll call him by name. His name was Ken Freeman. Is that right? Came to Tri-City a few years ago, big church we used to be a part of over in Catawba County, and I believe he wouldn't come unless the church would guarantee him, what was it, $10,000? $7,500 guaranteed for a week's worth of work. Now you multiply $7,500 times 50 weeks a year. I'm in the wrong business. Unbelievable. A little bit later in this publication, I was encouraged. There's an advertisement here for what they call the Pure Grace Bible Conference that took place in November 1954 in, somewhere in Kentucky. And they're advertising this, and obviously it's free to anyone who would want to come and learn. You know, a Bible conference that doesn't charge admission is a rare thing nowadays. Very sad, but there's a statement here at the bottom. We need 200 homes of believers in and near Louisville to furnish bed and breakfast to one or two people each. Now, can you imagine that? Christian people opening their homes to other believers whom they've never met so that they can come and hear the Word of God preached. Those days are gone in this country, my friends. I've had the great privilege of 
traveling to many places to preach the gospel in at least 44 countries. I've had the privilege to walk all over the Himalayas in Nepal and India. And when we go out for a multi-day trip to share the gospel in the villages, we never have to take a tent in Nepal. I never have to haul a tent. We don't have to take a stove and things that you would have to take here in America if you went in the back country. Because the hills in Nepal are full of villages. And it would take us a lifetime to take the gospel to every one of those. But you're guaranteed in these Hindu and Muslim lands, I mean Hindu and Buddhist lands, you're guaranteed to find a place at night where you can knock on the door, offer the people a few bucks, and they'll give you a bed and cook you a meal for dinner. A complete stranger, a Hindu home or a Buddhist home will open their doors to you. Can you imagine that here in America? I've traveled across this country preaching on college campuses and traveling with other brothers and praise God for Christians who we know who open their homes to us so we can be good stewards of God's money and not stay away from the hotels. But the thought of walking up to a stranger's home where a believer supposedly lives and knocking on that door and say, hey, can we have a place to sleep for the night and not being run off the property is quite foreign. So things have changed greatly here in America. It's very sad, but it's a sign of the times. I believe we're living in the last days. I'd like, for you, I'd like to ask for you all, if the Lord would bring it to your mind, to remember and pray for a young brother from northern India. His name is Dawa Dorje. He's a Ladakhi. Okay, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of details, but Ladakh is in northern India. We've spent some time up there. We've got to work up there now. And uh, the Ladakhi people are steeped in Tibetan Buddhism, which is one of the most wicked religions on the face of the planet. Usually the Western mind is fascinated with Hinduism and Buddhism and how tranquil and peaceful and all of this stuff it is supposed to be. But Tibetan Buddhism is dark. As one Ladakhi Christian told me once, the Dalai Lama has a big old smile that everybody here in the West loves, but behind that smile is a demon. Dark. And so there are very few believers in Ladakh. And the ones that do come to Christ often lose their families and are often pressured by the local Buddhist associations to leave town and never come back. There is one church in the town of Leh at 12,000 feet up in those Himalayas where we've been based. It's the Mor a Moravian church that was started by faithful Moravian missionaries many years ago. But the church is completely compromised. It's almost like a little mega church up there in this Buddhist town. And years ago, the Moravian church signed an agreement with the local Buddhist association promising that they would do no evangelism amongst the Buddhists. Now, I don't know how you call yourself a church if you would do something like that. And so in this area where we label the Moravians and their leaders are just as much an enemy of the gospel as the Buddhists, but out of this, God has saved some folks. And the few Ladakhi Christians that are there, they don't even have a pastor. Or it's, it's hard for them to gather. And there's really not even a church there. The only church that's doing anything in the area is a small gathering of Nepali laborers. The Nepalis will come over and labor in this area. The, the Ladakhis often treat them like garbage and give them menial jobs. And, but there's a few... Nepali's there, but for the few Ladakhi believers, they don't even really have a church that they can come together and fellowship regularly. But this young brother we met had been saved very recently, and he went out with us, and 
as we did some evangelistic outreach and came under some conviction about a desire to be more bold, and as we began to talk about where he was spiritually, we learned that he had not been baptized yet. And baptism, my friends, is an, is an important step of obedience in the Christian life. Baptism doesn't save you. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace upon our repentance. A free gift brings salvation. But baptism is that initial step of obedience. And so if a man who claims to follow Christ is unwilling to take that step of baptism, which is a testimony to the church and to the world, then it's unlikely that he would be obedient in anything else. And so we had the privilege of encouraging this brother to be baptized biblically, and that if he would do that, we guaranteed that God would bless him and begin to use him. Now, for him to take baptism was very risky, because if it was done in the open, or his family found out about it, it could create big problems. But the Bible is clear. And we encouraged this young man, he was about 22 years old, to be biblically baptized. And we had the great privilege of going out to the Indus River, which is one of the, one of the main rivers of Asia. In fact, that's where the name India came from. The British named it after the Indus River. But it comes flowing down out of the Himalayas, and it's really cold that high up. But we had the privilege of taking this brother. My family was there. And we hiked out to the Indus River to a spot where about seven or eight years ago some Buddhist monks had been saved and baptized in secret. So it was an honor to go out there. It reminded me of the place in Israel where our Lord was baptized. It looked just like it. We had to crawl through about a hundred yards of thornberry bushes or seabuck thornberry bushes. And my children were crying. It was so miserable. Big old thorns. But we finally made our way through that and ended up on the bank and found a nice little eddy where it was deep and got to baptize this brother there in the cold waters with snow-capped mountains in the background. Had a nice little service there. and It was a great encouragement to see someone follow the Lord in believer's baptism knowing that it would cost him something. And so I just ask that you pray for this young man. I sent a Bible to him by way of Delhi a few days ago in the hands of another believer. It was an old, just a little old black King James Bible that I've carried with me all over the world. And I've used it as a street preaching Bible in many places. And it was an honor. <coughs> I didn't really want to part with it, but I felt like the Lord wanted me to pass it on to him. And it was an honor to do that. And I've been able to keep in contact with this young man. But I just ask that the Lord brings it to your mind to pray for him. He has no one. And I'm hoping as we go back next summer and Ricky relocates up there to do the Israeli outreach in Ladakh that we'll be able to encourage him and encourage the few believers that are there to, to begin to meet regularly. And hopefully a church will come from that. So if you remember this young man, Dawa Dorje, I'd appreciate that. Alright my friends, I'm going to preach a message tonight. And I want you to know right from the outset that this message is for believers. Okay? I'm not preaching to the lost tonight. If you're not born again, I, every one of you I recognize in here, so I know this isn't new to you. If you're not born again, it's not because you haven't heard the gospel. You've heard the gospel here. I know if you've been here long enough, I know you heard it from Brother Terry. I know you heard it from Brother Wesley. And I know you hear it regularly from Pastor Mike here. So I'm not here to preach the gospel tonight. If you don't know Jesus Christ and true salvation by now, then I don't know what else I could tell you because it's already been told. So I do want to preach to believers tonight. This is not a message for a lost man. It's not a message to make you doubt your salvation. This is a message for genuine born-again believers. 
So I just want to establish that here at the beginning. This week we've been talking about revival, analyzing it from the Bible's perspective, not, through, not from what we think revival is or should be. I, I spent the first couple of services talking about how if we're going to have revival in the church, we have to understand that it can only happen in the context of the last day's apostasy in which we live. That the world is not moving toward a great worldwide revival. Everything's getting better and better to usher in a golden age or an age of peace, like some people teach. No, everything's down spiraling just like the book of Judges. And it's going to wax worse and worse. Worse and worse. A great falling away to set up the coming of the man of sin and his short-lived kingdom until Jesus comes to rapture His church and then Antichrist's kingdom will come and then wickedness will, be, will run rampant and then the Lord will come back and set up a kingdom. Things are moving downward. I believe we're living in the last days. The days we live in are very different from the days in which this nation saw great spiritual revival and awakening back in the colonial days in the 19th century and things like that. We are living in the last days. We are on the other side of Israel becoming a nation. And so if revival is going to happen, it's going to happen within the context of last day's apostasy. There's not going to be a worldwide nation-sweeping revival, I believe. That's not God's plan and purpose for the ages. There will be one more revival and great awakening, I believe, during that great tribulation when God seals 144,000 Jewish witnesses who are going to go out and finish the job that the church never did because we've not been faithful in this Laodicean church age. Those days are coming. But God is still working in the hearts of men and He is still working in the local church and revival is as possible as the sunrise. Then we talked about principles of revival that the Scriptures clearly indicate. Number one, you can't be revived unless you've been born again. So if you're not saved and you're seeking revival, you're never going to find it in your life. You need to be saved. You need to repent of your sins and have your dead spirit regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, revival cannot be planned or organized. We planned some meetings this week. But we're not here because we think we can organize revival or make it happen. Revival is the sovereign act or sovereign work of a sovereign God who brings revival for His glory, not for ours, according to His plans and purposes for the ages, on His timetable and on His terms. Revival in the hearts of believers is just as much a sovereign act of God as salvation is in the, as in the heart of a non-believer. So we can't plan it, we can't organize it. It comes on God's terms. Conversely speaking, we can't stop it if God intends to bring it. So those are some things we've been talking about this week. I want to look at another principle of revival that I think we see very clearly in the Scriptures and we see it consistently in history when God has poured out His Spirit. And that is this. Sin is a hindrance to revival and genuine revival always starts at the same place. It always starts at repentance. Revival in the church, biblically, historically, has never started at any other trailhead. It always begins with repentance. And my friends, as Christians, we are not without sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That was 1 John, written to believers. We need revival. 
And revival in our lives and in this church starts with repentance. We can't organize or plan revival. It's a sovereign act of God for His glory. Neither can we stop it if God intends to bring it. But why is it not happening? Why? Why is it not happening here? Why is it not happening in the churches of America? Obviously, we're living in the last days. And these aren't days of great awakening. The answer... I've actually already given it to you, but the answer can be found. Tonight we're going to look at John's letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be skimming through chapter 2 and chapter 3 tonight. The answer to why we're not seeing what is a sovereign act of God and what can't be stopped if God intends it to happen is contained right here in these chapters. You know, a lot of people have endeavored to interpret the book of Revelation. When you don't interpret Scripture with Scripture, you get into a lot of trouble. I, knew, I know good, solid guys who are bold street preachers and they have a heart for evangelism, but they get into the book of Revelation and they get all messed up. They start trying to tell me that the church is a spiritual replacement for Israel and that there is no literal millennium. I've had people try to tell me we're living in the millennium right now. I don't know where you come up with this nonsense. But you can get in a lot of trouble in Revelation if you don't interpret it with other clear Scripture and if you don't follow the outline and makeup of the book that was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. If you look in chapter 1, verse 19, we have the outline of the book of Revelation given to us. John has told us to write the things which he has already seen. That's the vision of Christ in His glorified priestly role, His glorified kingly role, right there in chapter 1, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, that would be chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, and then the things which are hereafter. Hereafter what? The things which are. That's chapter 4 to the end of the book. Those are the things that take place after the letters to the seven churches. Those letters to the seven churches represent the church age. The things which are hereafter are what happened after the church age. We are in the church age right now. That period of time whereby God is building a peculiar program. Jew and Gentile together. Building His church. Pentecost until the rapture. It's, a, it's, an, in, it's an interval of time. If you know Old Testament prophecy and God's dealings with Israel, it's an interval of time between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. An undetermined specific amount of time that only God knows. But Revelation 2 and 3 are these letters to the seven churches, the things which are. It's interesting because in chapter 4 verse 1 you see John sitting there and then he sees a door opened in heaven and the voice says, come up here. And immediately he's in a throne room of God. Throne room of God in heaven. That's a picture of the rapture. Right in the precise place it happens in human history at the end of the church age. And then you get into chapter 5 and it's interesting because those elders there represent the church and you see the church in heaven in chapter 5 and it's not mentioned again until the end of the book because the church is not here on earth during that tribulation. If you've got a King James Bible, you really see it. Some of these modern versions mess those verses up in chapter 5 where <coughs> those elders are gathered around the throne and they worship the Lamb who was slain. Worship Him because Thou hast redeemed us, first person, out of every tribe, kindred, and nation. And Thou hast made us 
kings and priests. Well, 24 elders can't be out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's an innumerable multitude represented by those elders. And that first person pronoun shows us the church is in heaven. You won't find that in some modern Bibles because they've changed it. But that's what's written in the Greek. I'm not going to get into that anymore. But there's just a, it's interesting how it all comes together. But in Revelation 2 and 3, you have seven letters to seven different churches. These were actual churches in John's day. John was kind of an elder after he was... It's believed that he eventually was released from his imprisonment on the island of Patmos. This was sometime around the end of the, uh, end of the first century. And that he served as a shepherd or, or, or an elder to kind of hold the different churches in Asia Minor accountable in his last days. These were churches that were the result of Jews that had fled Jerusalem and continued the ministry started by Paul after the destruction of the city in A.D. 70. And they were churches flourishing in John's day. Not the only churches and not the biggest churches. But for God's prophetic reason, He chose these seven to be the receivers of these letters. They were actual churches in John's day. They are types of churches that exist at all times in the church age. So they're types of churches. We can read through these letters and see that very clearly. But they're also, I believe, a prophetic foreview of the entire church age, which started at Pentecost and ends with the rapture. It's amazing to go back and look at church history. I love history. History is the second greatest lesson book that God has given to man aside from the Bible. Those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Where Bible-believing Christians are concerned, if you don't know your history, you're doomed not to repeat it. So it's good to know. But it's amazing to see how these seven letters encapsulate all of church history. A prophetic foreview. I'm not going to get into the details of all that. But we are presently, I believe, living in the Laodicean church age. The last of the seven churches. The apostate church. Laodicea in the Greek means the rights of the people. And isn't that an appropriate description of the church today? The rights of the people. What I want. It's about me. It's about us. It's not about Him. We are in Laodicea now. Of these seven churches, five of them are in desperate need of revival and were being hindered in their work. The other two, there is no condemnation from our Lord. Smyrna was the persecuted church, the suffering church, and Philadelphia was the church that loved the Word of God, loved one another, and loved sharing the truth. If you're a church that is suffering persecution, as so many are around the world, you're probably not in need of the Bible. I mean, not in need of revival. I'm sorry, excuse me, that was really a strange statement. You're probably not in need of revival because suffering and persecution tends to weed out the fake or nominal Christians and what's left are serious people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and are willing to suffer for Him. So if there's persecution, there's genuine, generally no need of revival because the persecution purifies I've had the great privilege of worshiping and even teaching, even though I'm far from worthy to do that, persecuted brothers around the world and sisters. And I'm amazed at the things these simple people are willing to suffer for the gospel. We know nothing of that here in America, although it's coming. It's coming. There's subtle hints of that now. Of course, if you've got a church like Philadelphia that loves the Word of God, loves one another, and loves sharing the truth, it's not going to be in need of revival either. 
because it's obeying the Word of God and living by it. But there are five of seven here in these letters that are in some way cold, worldly, and ineffective, and revival was needed, but it was hindered. In all five of these, it was hindered. I just want to look at a few verses tonight. What was needed in these churches? Where should they have begun? Christ gave a simple answer. And it's the same answer to the question I asked a few minutes earlier. Why is this revival not happening? If it's as possible as the sunrise, if it's a sovereign act of God, if it's something that we can't stop, if God intends it to be, why does it not happen? The answer is the same answer that Christ gives to these churches. All five of them. And it's the same exhortation we need to hear tonight. So let's just look at a few verses. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This letter is written to Ephesus, the backsliding church. What is it that Jesus Christ has to say? Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Let's go on down a little bit later. Same chapter, verses 14 through 16. This is the letter to the church at Pergamos. Pergamos was the tolerant church. Tolerant of evil. Man, we got a lot of Pergamos churches in this country today. Tolerant of evil. Tolerant of things God calls wicked and man calls good. And vice versa. Verse 14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Nicolaitanism was this idea that there was a division between the clergy. You know, the leaders, they're high up. They're the ones with the special knowledge, the special level. And then the laity, the peons who had to come to the spiritual leaders or the pastor to get the answers. Jesus Christ hates that. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ground is level and every believer is a priest. The pastor is a shepherd and a servant, not a dictator or a king. Not a dictator or a king. We are to live as leaders, pastors, preachers, and evangelists. We are to be in samples to the flock. Ensample is not an old, archaic King James word. It's a very appropriate word. Example is singular. I might be an example of a good uh, uh, evangelist, or I might be an example of somebody who knows not, who doesn't know how to work on a car. But an ensample is one who is a model in many different things, and it, uh, someone to be modeled in many things. That's where the pastor's primary role is to be an ensample to the flock, to lead by example. If I'm to stand up here tonight and, and exhort you to go out and share your faith and I'm not doing it myself, shame on me. If I'm here tonight to tell you to repent and I'm not willing to repent in my life, shame on me. But what does Christ say here? Verse 16, All of these things were wrong with Pergamos. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against thee with the sword. Of my mouth. A little bit later in the chapter, the message to the church at Thyatira, the adulterous church, the unrepentant church. Verse 20 Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent 
of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her, into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Are you getting the common theme here? Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Sardis, the dead church. In church history, this was the Reformation church that started a good work and didn't finish it. Be watchful, verse 2, chapter 3, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. And then finally, verses 16 and verse 19 in chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, the apostate church, the lukewarm church, Christ will spit it out of its mouth. These are the days we're living in now. Verse 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Why is it not happening? Revival. What is needed for revival to happen? What must we do? Repent. That's the answer. Revival, biblically and historically, always begins with repentance. And that's what Jesus Christ told every one of these five churches. They all had their own problems. Some of them were zealous in areas and had things worthy of commendation. The church at Ephesus was to be commended by our Lord because they couldn't tolerate false teachers. Yet they'd lost their first love. Lost their first love and become legalistic. What did Christ tell them to do? Repent. Then you had the church at Thyatira who was adulterous. It, in church history, that was the church during the time in which the Roman Catholic uh, uh, system had conquered all of Europe and was full of all kinds of Babylonian paganism. What was the message for the adulterous church? Repent. You've got Laodicea. There is no commendation in that letter. It's just rebuke from our Lord. Same message, repent. Repentance is the starting point for revival. The other night we looked at Jeremiah chapter 3 where you have a clear definition of repentance. God said to the people of Israel, only acknowledge thy sin and then turn from it. Repentance is not paying penance to a priest or bowing down at an altar. It's acknowledging our sin. That means not making excuse. God, you're right, I'm wrong. And then turning from it. That's the starting point for revival in the church. Amongst believers is repentance. Sin hinders revival's work. And revival can only begin with repentance. Not songs, crying, begging, pleading, or just prayers. But repentance. Acknowledging and turning. There are things that hinder other things. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, that if we as husbands fail... To honor our wives and as a weaker vessel, something I've failed to do many times, then our prayers can be hindered. Revival can be hindered by our sin. Turn to Joshua chapter 7 for just a moment. Old Testament. I like to, I like to get folks to flip through their Bibles like a Bible drill when we're preaching here because it, it's good to find things tucked away in there that we don't get to see very often. Chapter 7 is when Israel is entering in the land. They've already defeated Jericho and they've gone on to continue conquering cities, but there was sin in the camp. 
a man named Achan, the troubler of Israel, had stolen something that was supposed to be dedicated to God and had hidden it from the spoil at Jericho so that when the armies went out to fight against the people of Ai, God wasn't there to help them. And I think 36 Israelites died and they fled before their enemies. And Joshua was dumbfounded. What is going on? And it tells us here in the beginning part of the chapter that he got on his face and was crying and pleading to God. Verse 10, look what the Lord said to Joshua. Get up, get thee up. Wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed My covenant which I commanded them. For they have taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen, and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed from among you. There was sin in the camp. What did God tell? Joshua was praying and seeking the Lord. What did God say? Get off your face. Stop your crying and your moaning. There's sin in the camp. Go take care of it. That really is a message to us. The Bible, yes, this is Israel. Yes, this is Israel's history. No, Joshua wasn't a pastor of a church. But the Bible tells us twice in the New Testament that the Old Testament was written for our learning. It was written for our admonition as the church. And so these principles teach us the character of God. And here, sin in the camp was a hindrance. God wouldn't tolerate it. He wouldn't look at it. And it's the same thing for the church. If we want revival and there's sin in the camp, we need to put it away from us. Yes, revival cannot be planned or organized. Neither do we have the power to prevent or stay it if God desires it. For revival is a sovereign act of His sovereign will for His glory and in accordance with His sovereign purposes on His table and on His terms. But it can be hindered not because we have power over God, but because God says so. And He will not tolerate or look upon our willful disobedience. Have I just contradicted myself? I don't think so. Maybe you just need spiritual eyes to see the both and... The Bible teaches both and in terms of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, not either or. You see, God has eyes to see far beyond anything I could ever see. My eyes are limited and God's not limited by my perspective. Both and, not either or. You just need spiritual eyes to see, not a contradiction. Unrepentant sin hinders us in the church. It does not hinder God. In the same fashion, prayer, we're exhorted to pray without ceasing and to pray with persistence. Prayer doesn't change God, my friends. It never has, it never will. It changes us. Prayer changes us. God often speaks to His people in terms that they as humans can understand. And it might give the appearance that God changes, but He doesn't change. It's only from our perspective. He's true. And what takes place is what He has ordained. Prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. Sin hinders us, not God. Psalm 66.18 tells us that if we harbor iniquity in our heart, God will not hear us. It's not that He can't hear us. It's that He won't hear us. Sin doesn't only hinder us. It can actually turn our prayers into sin. If we have willful sin and disobedience in our lives as believers... Our prayer can actually be sin. 
Do you know that it's possible to pray and our prayer to be a sin against God? You know, all these people in America, when something bad happens, they come and pray. Or they want to pray, and then they forget God when things are okay. Those prayers, most of the prayers offered up on 9-11, my friends, were wicked abominations in the sight of God. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, that if a man turns his ear away from the law of God, even his prayer is an abomination. That's scary. Sin hinders us, it can turn our prayers into sin, and it can separate us from the work of God. What did God tell Israel in Isaiah 59? Behold, my arm is not short that it cannot save, neither my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from me. And I won't hear you. That's what God says. Is there sin in the camp? Is there sin in the church? We can pray all day long. But like Joshua, we need to get up off our face and deal with the sin. If it's in our life, we need to confess it. If it's against our brother, we need to confess it to him. You know, yeah, we can confess to God, but if we've hurt our brother, we need to confess it to him as well. We need to purge it from our lives. If it's in the church, we need to love our brethren enough to approach them about this for the sake of the church. We as church leadership have to be willing to deal with sin and not sweep it under the rug. The problem with a lot of churches nowadays is sin gets swept up under the rug. And sin stays in churches. And time goes by. And maybe another generation comes along. Maybe there's a new pastor. Maybe there's new leadership and we think that somehow obviates our need to deal with this. And it never gets dealt with. That's wrong. Sin that's not dealt with in a church hangs around. And it can affect a body even if the people that were involved in that sin are dead and gone. It needs to be acknowledged and made right. Sin in the camp. Is there sin in the camp? Revival can only begin with repenting of that sin. What types of sin am I talking about? The Bible tells us there's two types of sin. Turn for a moment to Romans chapter 7. I love Romans chapter 7. Paul is in a state of flummox, I guess you could say. In this chapter, what is revealed to us is that struggle that happens in the life of a believer between the old nature and the new nature. Something we battle every day. I've had people try to tell me that Paul's words in chapter 7 are the reflections of a lost man. That can't be true. Because Paul, as he's wrestling, talks about delighting after the law of God in the inward man. Verse 22 of chapter 7. That's not a lost person. He's already described a lost person in chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, he talks about lost people know the stuff they do is wrong. And they don't care. They have pleasure in it anyway. That's a lost man's attitude towards sin. A saved man delights in the inward man after the law of God. But it's that flesh he wars with day in and day out. And Paul talks about that strife of the two natures. And he comes to the conclusion in verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says something that no man-made religion on the face of this planet could ever say or understand. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God for that. But in this struggle, Paul defines two types of sin. Verse 19, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. That's two types of sin, my friends. Sins of 
Omission, the good that I know, I don't do it. Sins of commission. That is, the evil which I would not that I do. Two types of sin. We often think about the sins of commission, sins against God, the Ten Commandments, sinning against the Lord, but we often forget about sins of omission. Things that we know are good that we fail to do. Maybe that's where we need to look in the churches in terms of repentance and revival. Maybe there is no open sin of commission in this body, but are there sins of omission in our lives? Sinning against God, breaking the Ten Commandments. What about failing to do what God has commanded us? Let's think for a moment about sins of commission in the church. Probably number one sin of commission in America's churches. Number one, far beyond any other, I believe is idolatry. I believe the greatest hour of idolatry in the world is not dawn when the Buddhists are circling their stupas and prayer wheels. It's not in the morning or the evening when the Hindus are receiving their pujas. It's not five times a day when the Muslim gives his call to prayer and they bow down toward Mecca. The greatest hour of idolatry on this planet today in 2014 is 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. I honestly believe that. There is so many in this country that claim the name of Jesus, but they're preaching another Jesus. Yes, there are other Jesuses. Paul warned that people would come and preach another Jesus. And he rebuked the Corinthians and said, you'll listen to those people and you'll forget the gospel I preached. Jesus talked about false Christ and false messiahs arriving that would deceive many. We are in those days. The God of American churchianity, my friends, is not the God of the Bible. The God of American churchianity looks more like the fairy godmother in Cinderella who exists to make our dreams come true than He does the righteous, holy Jehovah God of the Scriptures. Just like Allah of the Quran is diametrically opposed to Jehovah of the Bible, so is the God of American churchianity diametrically opposed to what is revealed to us in the Scriptures. Are we following the God of the Bible? Or are we following a God or a Jesus that we've made up in our own mind to serve our own lust and pleasures? Cherry-picking Scriptures about Him that we like and refusing to preach or teach those about Him that we don't like. That is idolatry. And that is the greatest sin of commission and the greatest barrier to revival in America's churches today. Who is this God of the Bible? Who is He? Do we need to be reminded tonight? I think so. The God of the Bible that we serve, do you understand that He's all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent? He's the Creator. But did you realize there are things that He cannot do? The God we serve cannot do certain things. Well, how could you say that? God's all-powerful. Oh, He is. He created all things. There are three things that the God of the Bible cannot do that differentiate Him from any God that man can make up in his own mind. Number one, He cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 says, God who cannot lie that promised us eternal life. Secondly, He cannot change. He told the Jews in the book of Malachi after they'd come back from the land in the Babylonian captivity and had become stale and were in need of the Bible. He said, I am the Lord. You children of Abraham, I change not. 
It's for that reason that you sons of Jacob have not been consumed. Because I don't change. Third thing God can't do, He can't let anyone into His kingdom unless they've been born again. John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. You ever thought about John 3.16? I love preaching John 3.16 in Nepali when I'm overseas. I just love the way it sounds. In that Nepali translation, it says that God, so, God loved the world yesari. In Spanish, it's de tal manera. In English, we say it with one word, so. Have you ever thought about that word so in John 3.16? It's so important. It doesn't tell us the degree to which God loves the world. It's an adverb. It tells us how He loved the world. God loved the world. We say de tal manera in Spanish, which means in this manner. In Nepali, we say yesari, which means in this way. So in English means God loved the world in this way. What's the way God loved the world? Did He turn a blind eye to its sin? No. Did He just tolerate evil and decide everybody's A-OK? No. He loved the world by sending His only begotten Son so that whosoever believeth in Him... That's the only begotten Son of God shall not perish but have everlasting life. God's love for the world is manifest in Jesus Christ. Outside the cross, there is no love for the world, only wrath and judgment for a wicked and untoward generation. God's love is in Jesus Christ. And outside of Jesus Christ, there is no peace with God. And American churchianity may, may tell you different, but that's the revelation of God and His Word. He can't lie, He can't change, He can't let anyone into His kingdom apart from Jesus Christ. Is that who we follow? Is that who we're unashamed of? If not, maybe we're guilty of the sin of idolatry. Few false statements are made about God. Commonplace statements in America today. I hope I don't shock you here, but these are false statements. It's a false statement to say God hates the sin but only loves the sinner. That's false. God hates sin and God hates with a righteous hatred the sinner. My friends, it's written in the Scriptures. Psalm 5.5 for one, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. It's written there. I didn't write it. God is angry with the wicked every day. Now God's hatred, mind you, is not based on emotion like ours. It's based on His character. So it's so far different than man-made hatred, we couldn't even draw a comparison. Sin has no character apart from the sinner. So how could God hate sin and it not be connected with the doer of the action? That's a false statement. God is such that He can righteously hate and unconditionally love at the same time. And praise God, His hatred looks nothing like mine. But that's a false statement. It's a false statement for, to, for me to tell you God loves you just the way you are. That's not biblical. God loves you too much to keep you the way you are. That's why when He saves you, He changes you. It's false for me to tell you all men are God's children. We're all the offspring of God, created by God. But you are only children by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26 
Who is this God we serve? Is He the God of the Bible? We need to examine the things we say and teach about the Lord and make sure we're right. What about Jesus Christ of the Bible? There are so many that have so much to say about Jesus or what would Jesus do and all of this. How about what did Jesus do or what did He say? That's really more important because we have that record. Who is the Jesus Christ of the Bible? I love preaching the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1 on the streets, especially in a Muslim area. They don't like what the writer of Hebrews has to say. But I love preaching it in Nepal as well. I keep bugging my partner over there. We've done some translation of biblical books and then printed them so that we could distribute them in mass. We've done John and Mark and the book of Romans. And I've done the initial work on the book of Hebrews and I keep telling him, brother, we've got to get this done so we could print Hebrews. Nepali people are steeped in religion and sacrifices and all the things that come with Hinduism. So to read the book of Hebrews would be a liberating thing for them. And so I continue to work on him about that. And I'm hoping we can do it. But the Jesus Christ of the Bible, all of this is right here in the book of Hebrews. Number one, He's superior to the prophets. The Bible says that God at sundry times used to speak through the prophets, but in these last days He reveals Himself through His Son. Now the Muslim doesn't want to hear that. He thinks that God's ultimate revelation was through a man who came 700 years after Christ. And that's the superior thing. No, God speaks through His Son. Not through the prophets in these last days. Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. You know, made so much better than they. Even in His humanity. It says there in Hebrews chapter 1, Unto which of the angels did He say, Thou art My Son, this day I have begotten Thee? Or Thy throne, O God, is established forever. Jesus Christ is the Creator. It tells us there in chapter 1 of Hebrews that by Him were the worlds made. The instrument of creation in His divinity. In His humanity, Hebrews 4.15 tells us He was without sin. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Hebrews 13.8 He's God in the flesh. Hebrews 1 verse 8 You know, I had an interesting time. We had a team meet us in Bangladesh, which is a Muslim country, and I took these guys out to Dhaka University which is down in the heart of the city. Dhaka's got an interesting history. I'm not going to have time to go into that tonight. But Bangladesh was a, a place of terrible genocide in the, in the 70s. And America was done with Southeast Asia, done with Vietnam, and so we turned a blind eye to all of that stuff. Didn't even care. But there's a dorm there on Dhaka University where the Pakistani army went in there and slaughtered the students in their sleep. This was in the middle of the night. I think it was 1971. There were more than a million people slaughtered in the city of Dhaka. And Dhaka became a rallying point for the people. Dhaka U became a rallying point for the people of Bangladesh who won their independence from Pakistan and won the freedom to speak their own language. It's the only country in the history of the world that fought a war of independence to be able to speak their own language. And so to go down to Dhaka is to go to, a, to the university there is to go to a place of historical significance. And I love going down there to preach because a lot of the students... Um, speak English and we can really engage them. You've got to be careful though. You're in a Muslim country and you could get in some trouble. Ricky and I got run out of there, run out of a place once by a mob for preaching. But in a lot of the conversations we had down there that night a few weeks ago, the Muslim students kept asking us, how do you say that Jesus is God? 
You know, the Bible never says that. Jesus never says that. And I'm like, have you read the Bible? Well, no, that's what my imam tells me. Well, of course. And it, we'd get out the Scriptures and I'd show them there in 1 Timothy 3.15, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Well, Jesus never said He was God. Are you kidding me, my friend? Look here in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Look here in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look here in John... Eight. Jesus says, "You people say you're the children of Abraham. You're of your father, the devil." Well, how, how do you say that? Jesus said, "Abraham rejoiced to see my day." How can you say that? You're not even forty years old. You don't know Abraham. What did Jesus say? He said, "Before Abraham was, I am. I am the name of God." Jesus called him God. Oh well, that's not what that means. Well, my friend, look at the next verse. It says the Jews picked up stones to kill him. Because he made himself equal with God. If he didn't claim to be God, why did his own people want to stone him to death? So I had fun going through some of this with these young people. But Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not just a prophet. God in the flesh. He's the only way to salvation. Hebrews 5, the author of eternal salvation. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father by me, but by me. Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved or whereby we must be saved. He's the only way to heaven. Is this the Jesus Christ we worship? Is it the one we're unashamed of? Or are we following one that American churchianity has made up to suit its own lust and pleasures? In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus told the religious leaders of His day, Except you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. I'm not afraid to say that here because I know I'm amongst a friendly audience. But neither have I been afraid to say it before a crowd of Muslims or Hindus or atheists or crazy people on the streets here in America. Without Christ, there's no other way. A Buddhist that dies in his religion will die in his sins. A Muslim that dies in his Quranic teaching will die in his sins. A Hindu that dies... Worshipping Shiva, which is the devil, by the way, patron deity of Nepal, will die in his sins. The churchgoer that dies in his religion will die in his sins. Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, is the only way to eternal life. If we don't believe these things that are so clearly enunciated in Scripture, if we don't believe them enough to live them, to follow them, and communicate them, Maybe we're guilty of idolatry and we need to repent. Sins of commission, first and, two command, first and second commandments cover idolatry. What about the rest of them? What other sin is there in the camp that hinders revival in the church? Is there corruption? Deception? Is there backbiting in this body or gossip one about another or about the pastor or about the leaders of the church? Is there adultery here? Is there fornication Malice, covetousness. Are there old sins in this body that have never been made right? Maybe some of them older than this generation. <clears throat> if so, we must repent or revival will not come. What about some sins of omission? It's talked about sins of commission. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good... And does it not to him it is sin. 
These things can be a hindrance to revival. The hour is late, so I'm not going to go through these passages, but in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, we have interesting list of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to certain believers for His purposes and for the edification of the body. If you'll go study those lists of spiritual gifts, there's going to be some things that you don't see in those lists because they're not gifts for certain believers. They're responsibilities for all believers. What are some things not listed as spiritual gifts in the New Testament? One of them is prayer. The Bible exhorts us to in everything by prayer and supplication. Philippians 4, pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, are we people of prayer? If not, we're committing a sin of omission. What else is not listed? Bible study. Timothy tells us to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Thy word have I hid in my heart, Psalm 119.11, that I might not sin against thee. Colossians 3.16 implores us to let the Word of Christ dwell in us. Studying the Word of God. That's not a spiritual gift. That's something that is we are to do. Are we doing it? If not, it's a sin of omission and a hindrance to revival. What else is not listed? Boldness. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, those aren't spiritual gifts. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5. I've preached in this church on that before. I've preached on that before. I've defined it. What is being filled with the Spirit? Acts chapter 4, verse 31 tells us very clearly that it's connected to the bold preaching of the Word of God or bold evangelism. Tells us those believers there in Acts 4 were praying in the midst of persecution not to be delivered, but that God would grant them boldness. And then it says the house where they were gathered was shaken. The Holy Spirit came down. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Being filled with boldness is being filled with the, is evidence of being filled with the Spirit. It's not a church, it's not a spiritual gift, it's something we are to be. Not only outside the church to the lost, but also inside the church. Are we bold with one another inside the church? As leaders, are we bold to call out sin in the camp? Are we bold to do what the writer of Hebrews tells us to do in these last days? To exhort one another daily, lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are so hesitant to be bold with our brothers and sisters in Christ. To love them enough to hold them accountable anymore. One thing I love about Jewish ministry and sharing the gospel with the Jews is in Jewish culture, there's something they call chutzpah. Okay, chutzpah is this idea that you just tell it straight up. And if you've ever been around Jewish people, when they get to arguing about something, it can be pretty heated. But the funny thing is, they don't take it personally, they just tell it straight up, and they're, they're in each other's face one moment, then they're sharing tea the next. A friend of mine and I were doing some, some hiking down in the Peruvian Andes a few years ago. We circumnavigated this entire range of peaks. I think it was about, I don't know, 50 miles, 60 miles in about seven days. And it was a route that a lot of Israeli backpackers like to do. And you have to cross quite a few high passes, I think 16,000 feet. 
But on our last day, we ran into this party of Jewish people from Israel. They were older gentlemen. And they had, one of them had a 13-year-old grandson with him. It was his bar mitzvah they were celebrating. And they were gathered on this pass having tea and talking. And we thought, wow, this is our last day. God's given us some Jewish people to share Christ with. And so we began to talk to them. And one of the old men got a little bit aggravated with us. And it was pretty heated. And he was talking about, you know, if there really is this God, you know, that loves Israel, you know, why, why did he allow the Holocaust and all this nonsense? And I just told him, I said, sir, if you ever read the Torah, you know, it's exactly what God said would happen to you all if you didn't follow His law. Go read the last couple chapters of Deuteronomy. Why are you surprised? The Holocaust isn't evidence of no God. It's evidence that there is a God of Israel and He does exactly what He says He's going to do when His people turn to idols. And I was getting a little bit feisty and loud and he was getting loud and I'm thinking, oh man, this is not going over real well. So this guy's kind of in my face and then just he just stops and said, by the way, you guys want to join us for lunch? You're welcome to it. Oh, okay. So we sat down and ate with Ms. Chutzpah, you know, telling straight up. And so in the end, he took a tract and we hugged each other. It was great. But I wish we need a little bit more of that in the church. Boldness. To call out sin. To hold our brethren accountable. That's what we're called to do. And when we refuse to do it, we're guilty of a sin of omission. Church discipline is not a spiritual gift. That's something that's absent in the churches today. But it's commanded by Jesus Christ. Paul exhorted the churches to withdraw themselves from people in their midst that are disorderly so that those people can be brought to a place of repentance. Not to even eat with them. Things that we would think are so horrible nowadays. The reason so many churches in this country are dead and have compromised is because leadership refused to use church discipline in a biblical way. And we need to repent of those things. We do it as leaders to protect the body. You know, we're in the process with our ministry right now. Someone who is serving with us is under discipline right now because of sin that's unrepentant. Refusing to repent. We have had to break fellowship with this person. There is no fellowship until they repent. And you think, man, that's horrible. It's not horrible, it's biblical. It's biblical. Are we willing to do those difficult things? If not, it's a sin of omission. Witnessing is not a spiritual gift. Jesus told His disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I know the hour is late. Forgive me, let me finish, please. If we were in Nepal, we'd be going till midnight. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's not a spiritual gift. It's a command if we're not doing it. If we're not sharing the gospel with the lost as individuals or corporately as a church, we are in sin. And that sin is a barrier to revival. We're not talking about sin that sends you to hell tonight. If you're born again, you're saved from hell. That's not the issue. This is sin in the church that is a barrier to revival and a barrier to being used by God. God told the churches at Ephesus that if it would not repent, He would remove their candlestick. Anybody that interprets that to mean God would send that church to hell has failed to rightly, rightly divide the word of truth. The candlestick is the testimony of the church in the world. And if you will not repent, God will remove that testimony. It's called a sin unto death. There's a sin unto death for the believer and a sin unto death for the church. 
In some ways, the rapture could be thought of as the sin unto death for the church because God's done with it. It's failed. And He turns back to His people Israel to complete the job. It is a glorious day though. It's the blessed hope of the believer as well. I don't want to diminish from that. But when we don't do these things, it's a barrier to revival and the only answer is to repent. Sins of commission, sins of omission in the church. Let's acknowledge it and repent. It's that simple. If we've sinned against someone here in the body, go to that person, acknowledge it, and repent. If you've sinned against your pastor in word or deed, go to him and humble yourself and repent. I don't know what sins are hidden here in this church, if there are any. I don't know what old sins haven't been made right. And I'm not presuming to accuse. That's not what I'm doing here tonight. But many churches in this nation have swept sin under the rug and they've buried it and they think that by, because the offending party has departed or because there's a new pastor or a new generation that it obviates the need for repentance. And my friends, God forbid, no way. The church needs to acknowledge and make right. If there hasn't been proper church discipline, if you've sinned against your brother or sister, sinned against your pastor, if you've gossiped, if you've backbited, if you've fallen into moral sin, acknowledge it and repent. For the sake of the church, that God might bring revival into your heart and into this body. Repentance. It's the only place revival can begin. Any other trailhead leads to a dead end in the woods. This is not only biblical, it's historical in terms of revival. I could tell you story after story from the Great Awakenings in our nation's history. But let me take you back to 1858 for just a moment. 1857, there was an economic downturn in this country. This was prior to the Civil War. And there were people in a panic, particularly in the financial capitals of this country like New York City. There was an economic panic of 1857. And in New York City, some laymen, not pastors, not leaders who should have led in this, but laymen decided, we need to repent. And we need to ask God to bring revival. So laymen, led by a man named Jeremiah Lamphere, began to gather in New York City during their lunch break. They began to meet in churches during the noon hour to pray, to ask God to forgive them, for sin and to pray for revival. And this happened for quite some time. They didn't pray for forgiveness for other people's sins for on their behalf, but they prayed in the first person, just like Daniel did in chapter 9 of his book. We have sinned. Guess what? Revival came. It's called the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1858. Revival began out of those prayers for repentance in the noonday hours. And before you knew it, entire businesses were shutting down. And the churches were packed full of people coming to pray. And then the Gospel went forth. It is, it is recorded that at least 10,000 in the year 1858 were saved from various nationalities in New York City alone. Baptist churches in the upstate in 1858 reaped such a harvest in their overworked baptistries that they were forced to cut through the ice in the Mohawk and the, in the uh, Hudson Rivers and baptize new believers in the bone-chilling water. 92,000 people were added to Baptist churches in 1858 alone. 
Immigrants and Indians were saved in droves and there was a great pouring out of God's grace and His Spirit on this country before that dreadful civil war that would come a few years later. Interestingly, the awakening continued into the war. It's estimated that as many as a third of the Confederate armies were saved during the Civil War. I've got a book at home. It's probably collecting dust by now. It was written by a Baptist preacher, J. William Jones, who was a chaplain under General Stonewall Jackson in the Army of Northern Virginia. And he wrote a book called Christ in the Camp. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. Amazing stories about the fruits of revival that began back with prayers of repentance in 1857. Revival began then with repentance. It will begin now if we will humble ourselves before the Lord. Acknowledge and turn. I'm not going to give a drawn out invitation tonight. I'm sure we'll sing a song. I just want to encourage you believers, this was a message for you. If there's sin in your life, acknowledge it and repent. If you've sinned against your brother here in the church or outside the church, go to him and repent. If there's old sin in this church, as a body, come together and acknowledge it. Even if the people that (coughs) brought the sin are dead, acknowledge that as the church, we failed to deal with it. Make it right. And the door is open for revival. As we pray tonight, as you pray, as we sing, (coughs) I want you to have an attitude I'm not trying to give you a formula for revival here. I just want you to have a humble attitude like Daniel the prophet did. And I'm going to close with this. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. I know I've been all over the Scriptures tonight, but it's it's a library of God's revelation. And I just like to check out lots of books when I preach. 66 books to work with. Here Daniel is praying... It's coming near the end of the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah had prophesied. And Daniel's trying to understand what that means. And he's set his face to the Lord God and he's praying about confessing the sin of the people of Israel and pouring out his heart to God. If you want to know what is a good prayer of repentance to model oneself after, read here in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's talking about the sin of Israel. Now, Daniel was a righteous man, beloved by God. Over in Ezekiel chapter 14, as God is prophesying against Jerusalem, Daniel is listed with two other people that God calls righteous. Job, Noah, and Daniel. God tells Ezekiel, you tell these wicked people that even if Job, Noah, and Daniel were living in Jerusalem, I still would not spare that city from destruction. I would save them because of their righteousness, but I still would not save Jerusalem. So Daniel was a righteous man in God's eyes. But look how Daniel prayed in chapter 9. I'm not going to read it all, but verse 5, We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judges. We... O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto Thee, but unto us confusion of faces. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face. We have sinned against Thee. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We have not obeyed His voice. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. Daniel includes himself. We do not present our supplications before Thee. 
Daniel, a humble man, when he prayed for his people, included himself as a guilty party. What a picture of humility. Let's approach the Lord tonight with that attitude. Because my friends, we are guilty of the place America is today. We're guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. Because we stood by long and we said nothing. And that's why our country is in the place it is today. We are guilty. And we should pray. We are guilty of turning a blind eye to sin outside and inside the church, of not taking a stand, of sweeping things under the rug, of not loving our brother enough to exhort him when he was in sin. We are guilty of these things and they're a barrier to revival. So let's be humble people that acknowledge that tonight and repent. You know, what's amazing about that prayer of repentance is the Lord sent an angel unto Daniel afterwards. And you know what followed? What followed was one of the most important prophetic visions given in the entire history of mankind. And that was Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks in which God spelled out the entire history of the Jewish people from that point going forward to the end of time. Because Daniel repented and humbled himself, he, it, it prepared him to receive one of the most important prophecies in all of Scripture. So important that if you attempt to interpret the book of Revelation without Daniel 9, you're going to fall into a bunch of trouble and get way off base. So if we'll humble ourselves like Daniel, God will bring revival to our hearts and He'll use us in a mighty way. So as we sing tonight and enter into an attitude of prayer, I'm sorry the hour is late. Let's be people that repent. Amen.